Welcome back to Following No One on a Stormlight Podcast. This week is episode 124, and we are covering part four of Rhythm of War still. Paul, how are you? Excellent. Excited uh, to get through part four some more. We've got some exciting stuff. Yeah, we do. Elliot? Uh, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. A nice mix of some intriguing stuff, some straightforward stuff, some dramatic stuff. Uh, it's, a, it's a well-rounded set of chapters this this week. We do have quite the mix today. We have present day Venli, Navani, uh, Bridge Four, Flashback Venli, and Adolin all to cover in in this uh, episode. We've got five chapters, eighty three through eighty seven. Do you guys have two words to summarize the episode? We'll start with Elliot. You know I do. My two words are ideal and irony. Okay. Paul? My two words are contempt and shoes. Okay. Let's use these four words and continue into part four of Rhythm of War. Shoes? Tell me about shoes. Well, can I tell you about contempt first? Okay. Um, so both of these words are talking about some of the dads of our storyline. Um, okay. Contempt, I'm actually using to talk about Liren as more of a discussion point. I feel like um, we're starting to see where Liren is like... We know there's been some weird stuff between Liren and Kaladin now, like, yep. and we're almost seeing. I feel like Liren is kind of given up on Kaladin in a way, almost like holds some resentment or contempt toward, towards Kaladin and his like choice to yep. do what he's doing right now. Um, and so that was why I chose that word is kind of for that like storyline that's going on that that problem, if you will. Shoes. Same about our other, uh, a different father-son duo of Adolin and Dalinar. Um, okay. And that is talking about, I was trying to, I don't, I, I'm i sure there's some better word or adage for this, but I was thinking about how Adolin has really big shoes to fill with Dalinar being your dad, you know, the bondsmith. And I mean, we know about his past now and how that's not pretty, but we've seen how honorable Dalinar has become and how he he's, just one of my favorite characters by far, um, you know. But we get some really cool Adolin things, and, and I'm kind of getting the feeling that we may see Adolin start to kind of fill in uh, more of the mature, honorable parts of Dalinar that we see and, and kind of fill into those roles as well, as well as being, like, a great swordsman and a stylish young buck, you know, kind yeah. of character. Yep, I can get behind that. Elliot. One of mine ties in directly to all of those points, Adolin, Dalinar, Honor. And the word I picked was ideal. And I picked it because the trial scene seemed to, even from the get-go, hone in on 
arguing about the ideal state and if humans make any flaw at all is that reason is that justification to not bond with them and so adolin finds himself in this tough position where he's forced to try and defend the ideal versus flawed nature of humans and then my second word was irony and i picked it for a discussion between esh and i and venley that we have okay but then also a bit for the trial that we see later and adolin kind of being stuck in this position of defending all of humankind when he has shalon sitting right next to him as the kind of perfect example of all the lies and and treachery that are possible treachery may not be the right word we'll stick with lies all the lies that are possible for a radiant to commit so yeah yeah i don't know if i would go as far as treachery maybe just danger yeah i mean we can remember back to the way of king's content on our podcast where i pointed out that Shalon may have been our biggest villain that we had seen. Ooh. One of our biggest villains. So maybe maybe we will revisit that, but, you know. All right. Jump right into 83. Liren is... Well... I'll lead with another name. Relaine comes to Liren and says Kaladin is unconscious he's in a coma we can't we can't wake him up nothing we can do can uh save him he's not involuntarily sucking in stormlight or at least maybe his stormlight is not healing him um as it as it should as it has been so they go to Liren and they say we need to heal him in traditional means we, he needs surgery and we enter the conversation and Liren is prepared to bring Kaladin down to the surgery room and and by doing that he would give him up to the the regal guards that are there in the surgery room so he is not willing to go to Kaladin at first he he agrees to after Hasina steps in but um Liren is real as you said in your with your words Paul Liren is has a real issue with Kaladin and his stance Kaladin's actions have led to people all over the tower causing some disturbances putting shosh glyphs on their foreheads as a sign of like quiet rebellion against the the fused and that's caused them to be beaten and Liren doesn't blame the people who put the Shashglyphs on their forehead. He blames Kaladin for giving them the inspiration. He sees Kaladin as responsible for the unrest that's in the tower at the moment. So he's Liren is prepared to give Kaladin up to maybe perhaps save more lives down the line. Is how Liren views it. What do you guys? What do you guys think of this conflict uh, that's been developing over Rhythm of War here? This chapter took Liren too far for me. Okay. I I so far have been willing to at least 
understand Liren's position of pacifism, kind of a, a, fa- a fairly extreme version of of pacifism. Pa- pacifism, sure. Yes, the words. And that he 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 actively wants to work with the oppressors. That in several instances he says that that's their job is to basically maintain peace by helping them as much as they can, or at least where they can. But here in this scene, he's talking about going and finding his son and then intentionally going and turning him in, knowing full well they're probably just going to straight up execute him. Yeah. And that, I don't know, I I don't see the defense of that particular stance. Going out of your way, to track down the fugitive your enemy is looking for for them, I, I can't see any reason to justify doing that. That that seems like we're helping the enemy at that point. I agree. I, I'm a little confused why we're seeing this and why, like, why this is. You know, we've seen Liren in the past, and like, he want he, he like. I've I've been able to sympathize and understand his points of why a surgeon is so valuable and what's so important about being a surgeon because we see that growing up, Kaladin wants to be a warrior like so badly that's like his dream, and Liren, his dad, offers the perspective of like there is honor in saving lives, not just taking them, if you will. Uh, there's honor in. Um, in in heroism and the like yeah protecting protecting lives and healing others right um and and that's something i can totally stand for but this feels very ridiculous this doesn't feel like the Liren that i think i've known um we haven't seen much of him in a long time but i still don't i don't i don't get it i feel like maybe this has to be something that's like played up the the only purpose i can think of for this is something to be played up so it spurs Kaladin to reach like the fourth ideal or something like that. Okay. But other than that, I, I don't, I don't know why this, I don't know why Liren's acting the way he is, you know? So Liren takes his, Liren takes his perspective to the extreme of, I need to save as many lives as possible. Kaladin has and is killing people in if even though it's in the name of defense he is still killing singers killing fused whatever so Liren takes that view to the extreme of we need to eliminate Kaladin for the good of my worldview of save as many lives as possible question does Brandon Sanderson take this character too far. Is this believable of a character that Liren would turn in his own son for that worldview? Do you guys are you guys sold on it or does it just throw you? It it throws me. I don't, I don't think it fits. Okay. I see the point that's trying to be made, but from what we've seen of these characters, like Liren still felt like a normal man. Like he still felt like a normal guy. Um but he's He's a surgeon, and like he has a, I guess, a different set of morals and ethics than a lot of our like common folk, common dark eyes and light eyes in Roshar. 
Um, and I feel like that's what was pointed out and what was significant at the beginning of our story. Because it was characters like him and like Dalinar that kind of made us raise our eyebrows of like, why are, are you doing, why are you doing this differently? And what cool thing is going to come from it? Like me as the reader, I was like, okay, Dalinar is really unpopular because of the way he does things, but there's going to be some fruit of this, right? Um, and I feel like that's how a similar vein of how I thought about Lyrian. But I, this doesn't feel like it fits in that for me. Yeah, I, f I have some similar thoughts. It definitely seems like a different Lyrian than the one we met back in Kaladin's hometown of Hearthstone. Yeah. I don't know that it completely breaks for me. I think it does work. And there was one line that helped it work for me. And that was where in this scene, Venli notices the spren that Liren is attracting are not anger spren, which you might take this to be. You might take this as a direct like resentment of Kaladin. But instead, she notices specifically that they're fear spren, not anger spren, that are being attracted to Liren. And so yeah. I took that as... Liren as a character is in a state of of brokenness in a sense. He he's been just thoroughly cowed by the oppression of the fused. And so I think he's acting out of fear and not idealism necessarily to his pacifism. So with that in mind, I I buy it as a character. I I don't like it in his character, but I, it works for me. That makes sense. I do remember that line now that you mention it. And that made me really curious of like, how is that going to really come into play? What's the significance there? You know? Yeah. Venley does realize that because those are fear spread, Liren doesn't, Liren's emotions don't fully back up all of his claims. He still cares exactly. about his son, no matter what his principles are vocalized. <clears throat> so would Liren actually go through with that? We don't get to find out, I guess. But So this chapter is actually from Venli's point of view. And by the end of the chapter, we have freed Lyft. But... Well, via Venli's um, will shaper powers, does she will shaper? I why can I never remember that? She uh, via her will shaper powers, and she basically lies to everybody in this chapter on the different ways that she explains on how she's getting uh, lift out. So she tells. Dabid and Relaine that I'm going to get him out with a shard blade. And they're like, you have a shard blade? Okay, I guess. And then she walks up to the stone, puts her hands to it, and pulls the stone apart. And then Lyft turns around from her cell, and she's really confused. And then she tells Lyft, oh, I'm a fused. I, I have fused powers. And so Lyft's like, okay. So she's still yet to tell anybody and 
I wonder if that feeds into her not being able to say her ideal on the last line of the chapter. So back whenever we saw Lyft before, Venley was like, who did she free? Relaine, I think. She frees Relaine in that chapter and then it's like, oh, I will free those who are in bondage. And then she hears a female voice that says, then those mm. words are not accepted. And then she tries again in this chapter, can I say the words yet? And Timber says, no, not yet. Even though she freed Lyft, which was the assumption of that's what she needs to do. So what were you guys' thoughts on where Venley is here? I do wish I do wish she would tell our heroes. I I kind of get why she's not. I think she's still clinging to her own plan, which is run away, take as many as I can and kind of refound the listeners, the the Parshendi who are kind of their own breakaway nation. So I think she's just still trying to cling to that and it's not willing to give up, but man, I it would really help our team here if if they if she would tell them what what she is. I did notice there was one lie that she made that if our characters are paying attention, they should they should be able to catch her on pretty quick. And I noticed it because it's one that kind of stumped us way back in Way of Kings, and it has to do with her shard blade. Yeah. And help help me make sure I get all my my facts straight here. But she's claiming that she found a shard blade or she has acquired one like a like a shard bearer that's not true right she's wielding her spren as a radiant blade now the difference i don't even know if she's ever summoned timber as a blade yet but keep going does she not in this scene does she show them a blade i don't remember i don't they talk about it they 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 do. I I mean, I know a lot of this chapter was tied up with like her selling the lie that she's using a shard blade because that's believable for everyone else. She right. can't be like, I'm using my radiant powers, you know. Um, right. I I I do agree that she I yeah, I remember that she claims, yeah, I've got a shard blade, I'll just go cut her out. But I'm not sure if she shows them a blade. Does she show Timber as a blade? I don't think so. I don't remember I'm that. To flip through the, the, I'm trying to flip through the pages here, and I'm not seeing it. So she may not hear, which will cover her. Because I was thinking in my, my head, as soon as she summons that blade, then if someone's paying attention, they should they could notice whether there's a gemstone on the hilt or not right because that's the difference right yep. is the the dead shard blades have a gemstone which you use to bond with it whereas a radiant blade does not so that would be a giveaway if if someone were to notice and if she actually summons it which yeah maybe she doesn't hear and they just talk about it which side note about dead shard blades they're essentially a fabrial right of housing a dead spren instead of like so soul casters are a similar thing where they're imitating radiant powers with dead where with with spren same with the shard blade you're just imitating the shard blade with the dead spren anyway keep going 
that was it. That was all my thoughts on it there. I, I hope she, I hope she comes clean to the good guys here soon. Well, now that you mentioned it, which I kind of forgot about are like quote, like normal shard blades have a gemstone yep. on the hilt. Is that like, so our shard blades basically are like knives that we get in the next chapter. It's like knife with the gemstone on the hilt that captures our sp- spren or heralds or whatever. I I appreciate like a the weird origin. I appreciate <laughs> the parallel. No, which we can we'll talk about here in a little bit. But no. Okay. So we we free lift, and then Van li- lift is literally is about to run down the hallway away from away from Venley and just run like like she knows how to. And Venley says, "No, hold on, wait. We need you to." We need you to save Kaladin, which is what, you know, if you want to get an edge dancer to do something, all you have to do is say, hey, we need a life to save. And then they're like, I can't say no, literally cannot. So, and then we end the chapter with, you can't, yeah, you can't say your ideal yet. So, Venli is close to revealing herself to our heroes, I think, but she doesn't quite yet. So, I was pretty shocked how fast we saved Lyft. There was kind of a buildup to that, and Lyft had been in captivity for a while, at least kind of chapter count-wise. She's kind of been... We knew she was captured, but we didn't know the details. I assumed that was going to be a fairly big plot point in the you know last quarter of this book here i I thought they'd spend like multiple chapters trying to you know bank heist style break into the you know the prison and and bust her out and instead they free her in like two pages (laughs) yeah it's hey i know an edge dancer oh over here okay cut a hole in the wall or reach a hole in the wall with your hands pull lift out good to go Okay, that was abrupt. It's either in this chapter or 85, but she re- Lyft reveals that she lost her chicken. She briefly grabbed a an AVR um, from somebody that Marais was hunting in the tower. Do you remember that interlude? Marais hunts some random dude in the tower. He's got the rings on his right hand. That we've been tracking for a little while now. He had a red AVR. Uh, red, the lift got a hold of the AVR for a, a second there, and so, and then it flew off again. So, lift is on the lookout for her new chicken friend, and but she doesn't have it with her. So, the only other thing I noted in this chapter was. Because it was from Venley's perspective, we got a little bit of kind of reflection from her at, towards the beginning of the chapter where she's kind of thinking about you know, her role in all of this and, and her purpose. And she thinks about Odium specifically. And she points out an interesting flaw in kind of Odium's logic, I guess, or, or purpose or manifest. Odium claims to be passion. He claims to yeah. be all of the passions, you know, raw emotion 
That's that's what Odium says he is. But Venley notices that there, there's a key emotion missing, like intentionally missing from all these interactions with Odium, and that is love. She remembers this love that she had for her mother, her sister, for she had a a once mate. I forget what mm-hmm. his name was. Oh, but shoot. anyway, yeah, that one's going to bug me. I should know that. I'll come to me later. But she she specifically realizes that those those emotions are gone, or they they kind of were drained out of her in this process of you know working with the void spread that she was working with, and then kind of all this exposure directly to Odium. There was none of that, and so if if Odium truly was all of the passion and emotion he claims to be, why is love removed from the equation? It it seemed like a it seemed like a good reminder for me that. Odium is evil. You could potentially try and go down a, a thought path of trying to justify, you know, oh, well, Odium is just raw emotion. It's like, well, yes, but also no. Right. And we're seeing that with the flashback chapters that we've been getting the last couple episodes and this one, that the more she embraces Ulim and tries yes. to find these storm spread. The less common ground she finds with Eshenai, the less care she has for her mother. The, the origin of trying to start all of that for her was save her mother. When is the last time she went and spent any time with, with her mother or, yep. you know, thought about it at all. All right, 84, Navani is, Navani has been foiled by Raboniel, but they quickly found Warlight right after that, which piques Navani's interest enough to keep going. She, she even asks herself in this chapter, like, why am I not going to carry water? I, I should be not working with Herboniel at all. She's obviously tricked me multiple times uh, with listening in on the sibling, et cetera, et cetera, to the point where Navani could be, you could argue that Navani is actively helping Raboniel in some aspects, but Navani cannot help herself because there is the enticement of the unknown is what she says. She can, there is science right in front of her to find and she cannot help herself. She has to pursue it. And so she still claims that she's not a, a, a not a scholar. scholar, but you know. We'll we'll see how that goes. She's looking for anti light. Or should I say more accurately, what she's actually looking for is anti-investiture. She doesn't really mm-hmm. understand that, but that is what she's looking for. She's looking for the opposite of Stormlight, the opposite of Voidlight, but both of those are just in investiture that's harnessed within light. So she, what she's really looking for is anti-investiture, and that's what we assume Raboniel is looking for as well. So what would you guys get out of this chapter? 
So that that made me instantly think once we got this mention of like negative or anti light, I was like, okay, what would that do? Right? It would like consume light, right? Mm-hmm. So instantly I thought of Nightblood. I also thought, thought of our sphere, but we haven't like seen evidence of it entirely. But I mean, it seems similar ish or weird ish enough for it to make sense. But this instantly just made me think of Nightblood. Um, it made me think that maybe that's the key to. I don't know how you make this anti-investiture yet, but something that just, like, eats investiture, and that is exactly what Nightblood does. He just sucks away at whatever Stormlight you have um, like, endlessly. So, I mean, I feel like that's gotta be the key to, like, using that to, like, take down Odium or others, right? I Nightblood's not even in this chapter at all, or hasn't even been in part four, but um, Correct. I do want to pause here because we've brought him, we've brought Nightblood up a couple times in relation to anti-investiture. Are you guys confident enough to place him in that category, or are is there still question mark? Like, I'm obviously there's a couple question marks there of if you're completely sure, but are you confident enough to place him there, or is he just another type of investiture that we haven't seen yet? We haven't seen any other mention of Dawn Shards, which I didn't think was Nightblood. I did not think Nightblood was a Dawn Shard anymore, but I'm wondering what... Th- we have X, We have a couple unknown items, and at some point I feel like they need to become known items or understood items. And I can't think of anything that makes more sense than this being like anti-light, anti-investiture. Um, and that meaning like it's completely different from our other, um, lights. It's not just like, oh, it's a combination of this light and that light or all three lights, but it is like, it is the consumer of these lights, I guess. Um, and it's relationship to, I would confidently say that. I do think Nightblood is a key piece of this puzzle, I think. So does Terra I'm very curious. Yes, which makes me even more, you know, want to know. Of course, I the key for me is going to be: is this anti anti light? Is it investiture or is it the opposite of investiture? That that seems like a key piece for me. And then, yeah, you can then translate that question over to Nightblood. Is Nightblood just another type of investiture, or is he this this anti light? that we're going after. I I'm with Paul here and that my, my gut says maybe Nightblood is this investiture devouring thing. But I, in the back of my head, I remember the, that very cryptic epigraph that we got a while back that seemed to almost hint at that Nightblood might be a shard. Okay. There I was do that. remember do you, that. Yeah. Do you remember that? It was yes, really I, vague. I, I do remember that. And it was saying that he w- it wasn't like one, but two. Yes. But, and I got really excited and I was like, holy smokes, Nightblood is two shards of Adenalsium or something. And then Trevor uh-huh. was like, nope. 
here's why it's not. And I was like, well, I that's didn't no fully fun. dissuade you. I did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's, I... that's true. But it did present me with an option that that is not actually the case. Um, and, and I know we spun a bunch of crazy, wild, improbable theories all based on, you know, four words in an epigraph that was an yeah. excerpt of a letter that we don't even have the full, you know, story to. So a lot of assumptions feeding there. But that even the fact that we're having that discussion, though, about, you know, what could be powering Nightblood makes me still think there could be other options out there. That yeah. there's that there's other explanations that Nightblood is something different still than just the anti-investiture that Navani is after. So I'm not sure yet. Okay. Hey. Incoming minor spoilers for Secret Project Three and the early chapters we got for that. Skip to thirty-nine twenty if you'd like to avoid them. There is one thing that popped into my mind as we were having all this talk about inverse light, and, and Trevor, you, you may have to you may have to stop me here, so I'll, I'll talk slowly. But what it reminded me of was the excerpt from the Secret Project that we read before before this book. Brandon had announced that he was apparently bored during COVID and wrote a billion books on the side and it's going to be releasing them but we read an excerpt of one of those yeah and i i I think there's a lot of folks that are intentionally avoiding reading those so i don't want to go into necessarily the details of that because that's probably spoilery too spoilery for for this (laughs) forum but the the talk about cross that threshold but yeah i don't know You, you might have to go back and edit me out but i'll just say this the discussion of light and an inverse light definitely sparked in my mind the discussions we had about the world we were on in that secret project maybe some interesting parallels there yeah at the moment we're walking a fine line of do i mark it as a spoiler do i not right i will i will go ahead and mark it as a full spoiler and just go ahead and talk about this Secret Project 3. Okay. So, Nightmare Painter. I know it's been close to six, six months since we read this, but um, you, me, and the Nightmare Painter, there is two worlds that have seemingly been split or were together at one point is the implication. And then there is two types of investiture at work. There's like a, a teal one uh, and then there's a pink one that are on two separate fuchsia yeah the two separate planets they can see each other but one's got a sun one does not one is super hot one has no change in temperature at all so the whole bunch of opposites yeah i totally understand where you would pull that uh comparison elliot um i'm yeah i'm curious to know if that is it in that excerpt it says virtuosity splintered herself it names another what we assume to be a shard where it's not confirmed it's also not published um so that obviously could change but it says virtuosity split splintered split herself um and so it's 
I assume that it's two different types of investiture as opposed to investiture A and negative investiture A, but I could be wrong. And that was kind of my, I'm trying to remember back to that take two was that, yeah, we, we have, we had different types of investiture going on there, but then we had some, some theories we spun about, is there a, a sun on one side and a, a black hole on the other side? Do we have this sort of mirrored thing going on? And if, if, if that's true and you want to lean fully in on the you know, inverse worlds, I was wondering if, if maybe we had some of this anti-investiture at work in, in that story we were reading. But yeah, we have so little there to go off of, right? So it's all just kind of crazy conjecture. Well, I feel I should, like I should throw this out there since we are talking about this. And the, the, this isn't... <clears throat> I don't remember if this was our last episode or two episodes ago, but not too long ago, I had a thought about that same secret project. I did not mention it because it wasn't... It was a lower tier of relevant for something that would, you know, we didn't need to super dive into right. the secret, secret project on the episode. But I'm wondering if it was maybe the dog and the dragon chapter. I just remember... Or maybe it was an epigraph where Hoyd is referencing like a hotel or something, isn't it? Or some kind of like uh inn. There is an inn that you cannot find on your own. Yes. But at the door there's a wheel. Yes. That's that's what I was thinking of. And I instantly thought of don't we see like an inn You see with a noodle Hoyd. shop. Yes. In my head it we saw an inn with Hoyd or reference to Hoyd. Hoyd is in that the, secret project. Yes. Hoyd is the coat hanger. And, yeah, oh, yes, that's right. Of and course. design is the bartender. Design is the bartender behind the um, behind the bar, and she has what you assume to be a light weaving of you know she's a an attractive young waitress, and she's the the waitress at Yumi's noodle shop. Mm-hmm. Yes, so the only thing that I would say would disconnect those two would be. Um, I would assume that that happens after Stormlight, or at least the first cycle of Stormlight. So I don't think the dog and the dragon would would originate from Secret Project Three. I thought so too. I didn't. That's why I didn't even mention it before because I was like, I think the odds of this actually being a thing is remarkably low and not not that tangible. But it was one of my thoughts. So while we brought it up, I wanted to to point that out. I do think you guys are some of the only people that knew Design's name before going into Rhythm of War, because yeah. because reading that, which the whole uh, spoiling that reverse was pretty funny. Anything else All for right. Secret and, Project Three before we clip it? I was just gonna say an end spoiler ses- session on Secret uh, Project Three. All right, you all can come back now. Let's talk about um, the knife that you were talking about, Paul. So at the end of Oathbringer, Moash is given a knife. And they say, and the fuse say, go stab Yezrian, please. Thank you. You have to remind me. And and Moash literally, no, no thoughts, just goes and stabs Yezrian and thinks to himself at the time, oh, I'm killing Yezrian, that's cool. And does not, no, no cares, no emotion, nothing. And 
these knives, excuse me, these knives are dis are explained as they are. There's one metal on the outside, and then like there's a sliver of metal down the middle that is gold in color, and it's called razium. So that this this knife is made of two different metals. Razium is supplied to Navani because she asked for it from uh, Raboniel. And Navani is doing some experiments with it. But Raboniel gives her some explanation on the mechanics of this knife. Elliot, do you remember the explanation there? She talks about it being able to draw out and capture souls and spren yep. and basically i i walked away thinking of that now as our our conductor material whereas our our other one ralcolest is kind of the the insulator that's yeah. the one that prevents investiture from working this one is the opposite this one conducts investiture and they can use it to capture spren What is the name of the metal spark for you? Rays, like odium. Yes. That's exactly what I thought. The the name of the character behind odium, the, the vessel of odium, his name is Rays. So that would imply that the metal is at least named after him, if if not invented by him, maybe an alloy of a couple different metals that can 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 do this because we know that aluminum has special cool properties when interacting with investiture you could also assume that you could make a metal that could do other cool stuff with investiture and raisium rays has found that out so I, I will touch on this, if not next week, but the week after, because these have to do with our epigraphs that have been coming through. Have you guys noticed our epigraphs and who they are from and why they're relevant? Seems to possibly be Herald related has been my thought. We will, I will, I'll probably talk about this more next week and I'll string them all together once we have almost all of them. We can talk about, uh, cause it, it, it's, it's relevant shortly. So we'll revisit this. One thing that happens in this chapter though, Navani takes a flame spren out of of a fabrial is it a flame spren takes some sort of mm -hmm. spren out of a fabrial puts it into the knife and then not, without even thinking moves the other spren moves like the other piece of paper is it a span read i think it's a span read um moves the span read and the knife moves with the conjoined fabrial it's still conjoined what do you guys what are the implications here navani's 
and Raboniel's brains go crazy as soon as they realize what just happened. So it seemed to me that the the reason why Navani and Raboniel are so surprised is not necessarily that they stayed conjoined, because that seems to follow the same laws we've seen with other conjoined fabrials. If you split a spren, it's in one half of a gemstone. It does what the other half does. The difference was now they had them in gemstones of, of fairly significantly different sizes. And so when she moved the large gemstone a small distance, the small gemstone in the dagger moved a large distance. And so yeah. that could have some interesting you know, uses that I'm sure Navani's engineer brain was already spinning on. I I did have a brief engineer explain thought explanation yes, on please. this one. Complete with the drawing that you poor Spotify and audio only listeners out there will not be able to appreciate. But if you're watching on YouTube, I did draw up a little diagram because Navani even mentions the I think she references conservation of energy in this, and that basically if if you're taking a, a large amount, moving it a, a short distance, the small amount moves a larger distance. I actually thought of conservation of mass and how it applies to hydraulics. And I have to draw up a, a diagram for this because it doesn't make a, a ton of sense just trying to explain it. But basically what I thought back to is my, my fluid dynamics course that I had taken, which explains hydraulics in, in this manner. Basically, if you take a, a large surface area like here and put a put a fluid behind it and you push that that large surface area you know slowly or a, a small distance, but then on the other end of your fluid, you have a small surface area all, all connected to that same fluid. When you're pushing that large amount of fluid a short distance, the small amount of fluid on the other end moves a large distance because it has to displace and move the same amount of water or fluid that your your large surface area is pushing. And so this is basically what Navani's new Fabril is doing. She takes the big gemstone a small bit, and the small gemstone is forced to conserve that energy or mass, however you want to think about it, and moves the, the large distance. So I thought it was pretty cool. Took me back to my, my college days. There we go. So I learned something new I never expected to learn every podcast. So with their Iron Man gauntlet that they have, they could create a hydraulic press is what you're saying? Oh, you could create all kinds of things. If, if nothing else, large hydraulic press, even we could improve our, our Iron Man gauntlet pretty significantly by putting large gemstones on the stones that are falling down the shaft, right? So that those gemstones no longer have to move, you know, larger distances. They have to move, if they could move shorter distances and they'd push Kaladin with the small gemstone further, right. that makes sense. So he could potentially go for longer, maybe. Those, those stones would be able to push him further as they travel down the shaft. You can move your, you can move your fourth bridge faster too. Yeah. Yep. Nice. 
Some Any, cool stuff. Anything else for 84? Nope. All right. So 85, we get a Dabid, our first ever. Yes. Well, I, I was going to say, well, I, I was just going to say I'm excited to, I would be happy to enter this chapter. Actually, Go for it. All yours. If you want. Okay. Uh, we get a chapter 85. We get our first, like, I guess almost Dabid flashback. It's like the history of Dabid, a lesson on Dabid chapter. Um, and I was wondering if we would get this or when or a lot of things, because I feel like I've been asked repe- repeatedly now, like, uh, what about uh, Dabid for this or Dabid for that? And I'm like, we know who is Dabid. Like, I know who right. he is, but like by name, I know he's part of Bridge 4, but he's been like the least of the Bridge 4 members, if you will. Like, we don't know much about him. He does not have much dialogue, you know? Right. Um <laughs> So he he's been a very like a more minor character, but this we get kind of a a brief summary of his like backstory, um, which I felt like was brief, but gave really good insight into like who he is and his motivations for why we see him now. Um, and so I thought this was a, a neat chapter. Uh, like I don't think I have anything groundbreaking to share from this chapter, but. It was really like nice. Uh, it was it was helpful to like learn about Dabit, I guess. Um, uh, particularly, I liked how it, it portrayed his struggle to like, like it, it talked about how he would do things that, like, I guess you could say a quote normal person wouldn't do, um, and so it would worry people. Uh, like, like he talks about how he put a rope around his neck because he wants to feel what baby David felt, you know, um, which like, you're right. If, if someone sees you putting a rope around your neck, they're gonna make a big deal about it. You know, and he in. didn't, yeah. he, yes, they did. He didn't want that. That's not what he wasn't trying to, to hurt himself or anything. Um, but he, 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 he thinks differently. You know, he he's kind of running at a different, like, a wavelength, I guess. Um, and so I, it was neat to kind of get that perspective, I'd say. It had not even occurred to me that David's silence might be anything other than, you know, battle shock that he, that had happened to him. And so yeah. to have this drop on us, it, it's not like the hugest reveal ever, but for some reason it, it hit me pretty hard. I was like, wow, I was not prepared for that. So this, this was a really cool chapter for me and it felt really, it felt really important or impactful to kind of go back and and get inside David's head a little bit and watch him watch his journey of struggle and being misunderstood and wanting to help, but just kind of, you know, doing everything wrong. But then here in this chapter to be the moment where David is instrumental in bringing lift to Kaladin and Teft and directly result in the, the healing, probably the saving of both of their lives. That was a big moment. That was so cool for David to be the, the one that that saves them both 
really, really cool. Yeah. I agree. It kind of bothered me on first read that the plot required David to step up, so he did. But it's this chapter also back backs that up of no, it was David's decision actually. All along David could talk and communicate, but he just chose not to. And so the whole convenient plot, the the mute guy begins to speak when he's the only one left. Like that that kind of bothered me. But to to know that this is a willing you could even say sacrifice from David that he's sacrificing something by revealing that he can talk makes it makes it better to me, I think. The end of this chapter, or middle of the chapter, I guess, Lyft heals both Kaladin and Teft. Teft wakes up and begins swearing and grumbling about where his clothes are and all that fun stuff. He's all embarrassed because he assumes that, I, I guess, that he has once again fallen to his fire moss addiction and he thinks this is yet another time that they're pulling him out of the gutter. Uh, so he's w- wakes up rather disgruntled. But the big takeaway there is Lyft can wake up our radiance. That's really big news. It, if for only a short amount of time, we'll see. But Lyft's, Lyft has the ability to wake up everybody, assuming that rule carries over. Oh, yeah. And that's huge, right? Because our only other way of getting our, our radiance back was going to be shutting down the tower or stopping whatever Raboniel did to start up that Fabriel that, that's shutting them all down. And that's a pretty tall order at this point. So if Lyft can just heal them, that that's, that's really big. Yeah. She can slide in there wake everybody up and cause some commotion. Anything else from this chapter for a dab it? All right. 86, we have a flashback chapter. And this one is interesting for a couple reasons. Venli has convinced herself that yes i've done the, the right thing in pursuing storm form regardless of ulim's influ- influence over me we are we are about to become extinct as a listener group and pursuing this form that they're in the middle of the war with the alethi at this point and pursuing this form is the only thing that is going to save us but I want to back up for a second and pose this question. Why are they in this war in the first place? And we talked about this a little bit of who actually instigated the assassination of Gavilar. Was it Eshenai after seeing the spheres that Gavilar had? Was it Venli after talking to Nail? Or 
was there another influencing party here? What what actually got them in the situation of literally all of the listeners are dying to the Alethi? I think we're left to believe... I've been trying to figure this out exactly what happened, and I, I think we're still missing a little bit of like what Venley did that night. Right. But I think I'm still of the belief that it was Eshenai who actually did it. Yeah. Who was the one who got Zeth, sent him on the mission, gave the command. But Venley may still have played a more active role in that than we think she might have. It's kind of where I'm at. I would agree with you, but I think there is what I think there is someone who intentionally had Esh and I see what she saw. I think there I think somebody rolled I think this entire war is a setup whether that's from the Sons of Honor or yep. y- y- whoever, these the right-handed ring people that we don't know about, uh, which seem, a- a- Zendweth seems to be in direct contact with Ulim at the time, and the whole implications of that can go, you know, anywhere. You could theorize anything with that. But obviously somebody is using the listeners to get the fused back onto Roshar and whether that's whose, whose fault the war is, is still a question, I think. Right. So at this point, Fenley is saying, yes, I'm doing the right thing. We need to get storm forms to save my people and uses the war to justify the actions. But somebody is pushing her to find this because, and that's why they instigated the war to put the listeners in a position like this. So she's also in this chapter has lost all sympathy for Esh and I and the, the lack of love that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. This was the the part that we were referencing before of the, the chapter describes that the more and more times the, the army comes back and the bravest of warriors are the ones that have fallen in battle. And Venley's thinking to herself, Oh, okay, that's good. The ones that would, you know, have enough courage to stand up to me are dying off. So, okay, yeah. we're making progress here. It was like, that was kind of a, a big moment for me. It was like, okay, wow. That that's pretty far across the line. Yep. And then this is where it gets into one of my two words for the chapters of irony First off, the whole just situation itself of the Parshendi are the people who like their entire existence has been built around the prevention of the fused returning. Right. They broke away from the fused and have spent hundreds of years at least, maybe thousands, trying to preserve this culture of don't let that happen again. And then here's Venli undoing every little bit of that and making the Parshendi the conduit for the arrival of the fuse. 
they are they are doing everything necessary to bring about the return of the the fused and so the the irony of that was pretty pretty stark and then it also played into the discussion that Esh and I and Venley get in together where I find it interesting that Esh and I asks Venley hey, can you discover for me like a, a diplomacy form? I, I want to talk to them, but war form is not the right you know, mindset for me to be in to do this. Can, can you get me one that's you know, good at talking to people? And Venley's like, eh, yeah, yeah, I'll work on it. But I, I found that ironic because later on, that's exactly what Venley will become. Right. When she enters into, I think they call it envoy form. Envoy form, yep. When she's in going around to all the... Yeah, exactly. When she's going around and kind of telling the story of the arrival of the, the fused and the Parsheni to everyone, that that's exactly what Esh and I asked for. And, and in the end, Esh and I got storm form and died, and Venley got envoy form and lived. Mm. Do you think it has anything to do with the fact that their character was switched, our POV character was switched? Because didn't... Uh... Brandon Sanderson say he was going to have this be an Eshenai point of view book. Yes, he was going to have the flashbacks be entirely Venley or entirely Eshenai, and he ended up just mm-hmm. throwing them both in there for yeah. a reason that I will not reveal yet. Okay, but he did give a he did give a full reason. But he also said it was a spoiler of the end of Rhythm of War reason. So, Anything else? 486. All right. 87. Great chapter. Adolin is on trial for the death of the honors. Well, all of the Spren in the Recreants, but specifically the honor spread because the honor spread care a lot more about themselves than they do you know the cryptics or whatever but Adel is on trial and day one of the trial is accusation day all of the honor spread get to take uh, pull three witnesses in front of Adolin and they get to make their accusations against Adolin what do we what do we start with I'll I'll just start by saying I loved the tension leading into this this chapter. I was I was very caught up with and very I was very engaged with what is going to happen here. What is going to go down? Is is Adolin going to be able to make a stand here? Is he just going to get crushed? I'm also kind of on pins and needles of is it actually Kalek that's up there at the yeah. top because where we left Shalon at, she was very strongly contemplating stabbing him with the dagger she has and replacing him with a light weaving and kind of turning, you know, intentionally rigging the trial in Adolin's favor. So I'm sitting there like, you know, trying to analyze everything he's saying, like, is, is that something collect would say, or is that something Shalon would say? And I, I think honestly, some of the ways that he talks did sound rather Shalon ish, like rather, I don't know, quippy or rather, I don't know, short. Must just be a light weaver thing, <laughs> you know, because Hoyt is also a light weaver, right? Like, it must be. 
we also know our heralds are, are just insane, right? So mm-hmm. I, I, I couldn't quite tell, but it, there's, there was a lot of tension in this chapter in a good way. There was. I did want to briefly, before we keep talking about this chapter, shout out to Ransk for something rather strange, actually. Ransk is a, is a longtime listener of our podcast and has a, a YouTube channel where he does word puzzles like Wordle. Yes. Uh, apparently, Collect shares this hobby as as well, or maybe he does. I'll, I wanted to read this little section of the chapter because I thought it was hilarious. They're like in the middle of the, the trial, and here's what, what this is Adolin's perspective. They waited for Collect to call the next witness. The high judge instead spent a good 20 minutes writing in his notebook. Adolin just hoped the notes he was taking related to the testimony. He half expected that the Herald was solving word puzzles like the one Yasna enjoyed. So apparently Yasna and maybe Kalek like Wordle. So pretty cool and funny. Maybe. Yep. I I think that is evidence against Shalon being Kalek at this point in time, because I think Shalon would get bored with <laughs> with a, a, a something like that. So for I think that's supposed to show that. Collect has no sense of time or urgency about anything that goes on in his life because he's been around forever plus another forever. So I I think that's just saying how crazy Collect is. Good point. Witness number one. What happens with witness number one? Witness number one is the keeper of the dead eyes. Right? Yes. The honor spren who is, because we learned before that lasting integrity like intentionally takes in dead eyes and tries to take care of them or at least make sure they're not being run over as they blindly wander around. And yeah, she, I think it's a, a she spren that's kind of talking there. She tells a pretty strong story against Adolin, you know, explaining how all of the honor spren were betrayed and betrayed in the worst way by their, you know, closest friend that they had a, a bond with. And so it was, it was definitely not a good start for Adolin. How would you re- rebut that if you were Adolin? That's a good argument. I don't know how you, how you're like, but we're different though. Like, you know, like, I think the way Adolin does try and rebut it is probably the best way to go about that of basically saying, yes, that did happen and is going to happen again, but not everyone is a betrayer of their spren. And if joining the cause is going to have some casualties, but will ultimately win the war against evil, it might be a cause worth fighting. And so, you know, basically saying just because you know, there's going to be casualties in a war is not the only reason why you should not join that war. Yeah. So he, he tried, but I, I definitely didn't seem like he was off to a good foot. What about witness number two? I was going to talk about this one a little bit. Witness number two. I don't I don't remember who it is or if it's someone notable. 
in the sprint world. Um, but Witness 2 talks about, like, okay, if we're going to bond, why not bond the Fused, since they're, like, the original people, they're, like, the rightful owners of this land, or of Roshar. They're the original inhabitants of Roshar. Um, and this made me wonder... I don't know. The The fact that this argument was brought up makes me feel... Well, <clears throat> I feel like it's starting to show that our Spren here don't actually care about any, like, defeating evil or doing anything good. It's just about surviving. Like, hmm, if we go with the Fused, like, maybe they won't turn back on their oath or, or on their bond, so... Maybe that's the right choice for us. Like it's it's about what will work for their bond, and so they don't get and none of them get killed, rather than doing the right thing, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, because it's always and Adolin, uh, like, probably talks about this. I think at some point of like, and the spread like aren't that honorable. You know, like it's kind of being shown that they're not very honorable, like we thought. Um, at times and who this argument comes from the the speaker here is actually fairly important because it is not an honor spread the the idea of doing this is not an honor spread this is what's his face the ink spread who has been assigned to be adolin's tutor to prepare him for this trial we've seen him a couple times in these adolin chapters blended so yes and blended he's he's an ink spren the same type of spren as ivory uh which is yasna's spren and he mm -hmm. he has the entirely utilitarian view of all of my friends died bonding radiance so i'm why not go bond fused and wipe the radiance off the face of the earth that that's his that's his argument And he brings up that rather difficult argument that our characters had to face at the end of Oathbringer, right? Of realizing that the singers are the native race on Roshar and the humans are the interlopers. And so Blended Blended brings us back up and says, you know, hey, they're they're the rightful owners of this land anyway. Adolin, though, responds here with, I think, something important, and that is he doesn't disagree with that because they're right. But what he points to is says, you know, they might be the rightful inhabitants of this land, but Odium is evil. And so standing up against Odium is the right thing to do. And yeah. that is an important distinction yep. in this, this conflict for me. It we are not fighting against the singers necessarily. They are the, the original inhabitants. The humans are the void bringers back to that whole spin on right. it, right? That whole twist. But Odium is pretty unquestionably evil and should be fought against. And this revelation, this line of thinking is not the first time we've had this. Leshwi and Kaladin not too long ago in the well chapter had this exact same dialogue saying, Leshwi tries to get Kaladin to surrender and Kaladin says I I can't do that because Odium is on your side. I cannot I I can trust your honor Leshwi. 
that you would treat me honorably if I surrendered. I cannot trust your betters because I bear the brands of Odium's men on my forehead, referring to Amaram, and I cannot trust anything that Odium is behind, But even though he could trust Leshwi. So yeah, I do One. think it's interesting that Adolin and Kaladin have come to the same conclusion on separate separate storylines. Yeah. One one thing I want to say about Witness 2, and then one thing I want to say about this whole scene as a whole, uh, is with the point I made, which is not necessarily like 100% accurate, I, I would add, of like, they're only doing this for their survival, right? Like, they're, they're saying basically we don't need to bond. If we were to bond... We would bond the fused, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least the whole like survival-minded, not doing what's right, I would say is what Teravangian is. Um, of like, I'm going to do what will save my people, right? Even if it loses. Well, I guess they're on behalf of all spread. So it's different from Teravangian in that regard. But at least the like. I'm going to survive, not win, like is kind of a Terravangian theme. Yeah. Uh, so you think of that. Uh the as a of as a whole of this chapter, you were asking Elliot earlier, like, hmm, what what should Adolin say here? And whenever I was reading this or listening to this, like whenever these questions were posed, I was like, I, I <laughs> don't <laughs> ask me to answer this. I don't that's all you and this is why I kind of chose my word of shoes or Adolin kind of starting to fill the shoes of his father, you know, kind of stained in his image is I think he, he does such a good job and that's well written. And that that's scenes like this are where a show or a book or a movie or whatever goes from a good story to like really well written because Stuff like this is like, especially if it stumps the reader. It stumped me. It may not have stumped all of y'all, but um, the 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 responses that Adolin gives are very thoughtful and very good. And um, I could just imagine, like, the pressure I feel like that you would have as the writer of that dialogue is pretty is pretty tense. Brandon Sanderson has an entire lecture on how to write characters that are smarter than you are it's it's a funny mm-hmm. content piece witness number three we we know who this is this is Notum, the captain of the ship from last book oathbringer who l- lets them go at the end of oathbringer and lets them go to mm-hmm. thalen city was that where they're... Um, anyway. I think so. And he lets them go, and for that he is exiled. That we, we find that out later, or earlier in this book. He's exiled from Lasting Integrity. He shows back up in this chapter in uniform, which means he has been reinstated. And he has a pre-written script that he pulls out from his pockets that he's supposed to be reading from. And he starts reading it, and it's like... I have been asked to bear witness against these terrible humans that like were insubordinate on my ship or whatever. And then he stops 
meets Adolin's gaze with his with his eyes, puts the paper down, and says, Honor is not dead so long as he lives in the hearts of men. Which apparently is a buzzword, buzz phrase for the honor spread because everybody like erupts in support of that phrase or opposition to that phrase and all the guards rush everybody out of the of the courtroom and Adolin for a second there like pulls his sword he thinks he's about to like get rushed on the floor for that word and Notum says and Notum is dragged out of the the forum square still saying that phrase and yelling that phrase to try to rally support for for the phrase what do you guys think of Honor is not dead so long as he lives in the hearts of men. In intriguing statement, I find it a a pretty cool sounding one. I'm trying to imagine what the like, political debate might be amongst the spread that this clearly is so divisive. And it, it seems like maybe this is right in on the topic that Adolin is trying to argue about. He's trying to argue that humans have an honor in them and are worth fighting with. And the, the honor spreader is trying to say, nope, they're not perfect, so we should not bond with them. But to, to say it this way, honor is not dead so long as he lives in the hearts of men. That's a cool idea that if men can live up to or attempt to live up to honor, can they carry on his legacy? Can they carry on what honor was meant to do here on Roshar in themselves? It's an interesting thought. So we've had Spren defined as slivers of, or at least honor Spren defined as slivers of honor himself. Right. And so the honor spren at this point are redefining honor for themselves because honor is dead. So honor is whatever I make it to be, or we make it to be as a culture because we are all that's left of honor. But this phrase, this is, this is me assuming that this is a long debate between like honor spren of if we all collectively live up to, or, or try to strive for what honor was, collectively we can recombine and preserve honor for what he was when he was alive. So if we put our faith back in men and men still strive for honor, we don't have to redefine honor and honor is not dead. It's a cool thought that could, yeah be pretty important. I also noticed, did you guys notice the effect it has on Kalek? Yes. He like shrivels up. It like has a physical effect on him. This, this statement, it's like he starts to panic. It like has an, an anxiety attack almost. I did. I wonder if that's a trigger for him because he has long ago surrendered to not fighting anymore. And even the thought of we, we could still win this war 
is that anxious for him so that he just cannot handle it and has an anxiety attack as you said so even even the idea even the argument of we can still win this war it there is still hope i what i think is the message behind this phrase really gets to collect yeah that makes a lot of sense because we saw before he straight up told somebody adolin adolin shalon one of them he's like yeah basically my game plan is just to get off this planet i'm just trying to get away whatever it takes for me to get away and so that that fits perfectly with uh he's completely given up hope and so for there to be a a possibility of hope coming back yeah he'd have to admit that his game plan is completely wrong right Yeah, interesting. Yeah. We'll see where this goes, because the Adolin section kind of ends there. For this chapter, Adolin says, well, that went fairly well for me. And Kalak comes back with, yeah, but it doesn't really matter, dude. I I mean, this whole thing is a farce. You've been told that over and over. And even if... I judge in your favor, you still might lose a lot of spread to Odium is the is the truth that he throws at Adolin. And then we end the chapter with a very strange out-of-context scene from Shalon Vale Radiant. And she's climbing a tree. She's trying to reach the the zero gravity zone of the lasting integrity. Or at least that's what she's claiming. Falls out of the tree, quote-unquote. All of this is just to get access to Stormlight, because she knows that the Honor Spread will try to save her with Stormlight. And she swipes a full, perfect Stormlight Sphere out of the vault. And the Honor Spread say... She she hides it by... So they think that she's absorbed all of it. But they, they tell her that was years worth of Stormlight. That because it the sphere is perfect and never leaks out, they can keep charging it and keep charging it full of investiture. And she, so she steals it. So she just stole, with one sphere, a lot, a lot of, of Stormlight so that she can use that now. Because that's been our, our choke point for Radiance in this in Shadesmar as there's no Stormlight, but having a sphere that never leaks, completely full of years worth of Stormlight, Shalon just successfully stole. Enough to sustain a light weaving of a herald, perhaps? Perhaps. Which, yeah, would probably debunk your theory of, if, is she already Kalak? Because she probably wouldn't have the Stormlight to support that. That, that probably would, huh? Like, she didn't have any Stormlight before this right so how would she have done that Mm, good point unless she gets a magic telegram stormlight sphere from Marais through the magic box maybe anything else for this episode gentlemen I, I think that was enough a lot to chew on there's a lot of different things happening at the moment yes tough to tough to cover Thank you for for joining me, Paul and Elliot. We reconvene next week. See ya.
Bye.